to ready to truck it i'm dooner here with michael vincent the dude i am ready to truck it man it's a well it's a stormy winter day here <laughs> not a heart of freight alley my friend a little bit of thunder and lightning going on man yeah it can't bring me down though because it's saint patrick's day a little luck of the irish and it's also i think national stimmy day right uh, have you checked your bank account have you guys out there checked your bank account i saw a little money drop in mine although i gotta say this uh by the time this show's over it's gonna be right back in circulation because my my wife's booking movers i gotta get a fence book to put in my new house i need furniture and all these other things so i'm putting it right back in the economy are you gonna be doing any of this uh, i think what bloomberg just called revenge spending oh yeah no i'm definitely uh, i'm on the bloomberg bandwagon man revenge spending. you thought swing hinge and the princess house were big last year dude it's gonna get stupid bro i'm thinking about building a hyperloop from middle valley right down to to headquarters there in freight alley my friend you bring a hyperloop we up on linkedin i'm looking on linkedin right now can you guys make sure we're up there so i can share this out with all the lovely people in the audience because we got a big show today. On today's episode, we're talking to a Netherlands company or about a Netherlands company that is trying to move freight at 700 miles per hour via Hyperloop. Now, we had a recent episode where we talked to Virgin Hyperloop. This is the Netherlands offering is a lot of these companies are racing to get this uh, this tubular system out there. And what's interesting, too, is that like our last guest with Virgin Hyperloop, this one as well, went through the den of Elon Musk. I think he uh, was a part of some SpaceX competition. We're also going to be talking to an author talking about her incredible journey as the first American woman to work at the Tokyo headquarters of Honda Motor Company, how she helped change the culture there, as you can imagine. Uh, we're going to break down the LTL and contract markets, and we're going to learn how one brokerage helped revolutionize Tigua's landfills green future. But first, Michael Vincent, let's tip the band. This episode is brought to you by Legend Transportation, which has been establishing partnerships through outstanding customer service since 2007. Learn more at newlegendinc.com. Let's hit the headlines. Yeah. yeah. There we go. All right. Here's some finally, finally, Michael Vincent, some good news about San Pedro Bay. The congestion there has receded to Christmas Eve levels. And this is a really big deal because just about a week or two ago, we were at like 33 to 35 ships at anchor. Well, Kim Link Wills reports the number of container ships at anchor in San Pedro Bay dropped more by more than half. Since the, uh, like, here it is, 40 were waiting at birth. I was underestimating it. 40 were waiting at to enter the port at uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach on February 1st. 17 container vessels is what we're down to as of Tuesday morning. Yeah, absolutely. And Gene Soroka says that this is the fewest container ships at anchor outside of the port of L.A. since December 24th. So Christmas Eve, my brother, when there was uh, also 10 container ships resting outside. He also noted another 18 container vessels are scheduled to arrive at the port over the next five days. So there's more coming in. But the average time at anchor in February was 7.5 days, about the same as it was in January. Uh, but Soroka said during a press conference, he said that during a, a press conference on Tuesday. So. Yeah, absolutely. The Port of L.A., though, they were able to ease some of the bay congestion while still setting a February record. So this is what's phenomenal here, and that's what made it so hard to unwind all of this stuff was all of these imports coming in while they're still trying to get all of that congestion out. It's funny. I was on Clubhouse Monday night with Kevin Hill, and uh, there was a guy who was actually picking up a container at the uh, LTL terminal over at, at Long Beach. And I was asking about the congestion. He's like, you know what? Completely different story than what I was seeing here a week ago. So I'm not that surprised by this report that we're, 
we're seeing here. But you know what Soroka said that really caught my attention? And it's something that's going to become a bigger and deeper storyline now is all of the empty containers that are uh, are adding to this export problem. Here's what he had to say about it. He said those empties at 285,000 plus TUs in February were 104% increase, more than double compared to a year ago. And empties were nearly triple the amount of loaded exports that left our docks. The lopsided trade imbalance we're experiencing is now at historic levels. We need a coordinated export plan on a national level that will create American jobs and assist U.S. companies in getting back in touch with their customer overseas. So something to watch for there. That's an issue we have been hearing about. I know they wanted to unwind getting those imports in first, but now you got this big empty container export problem, Michael Vincent. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how we uh, we fix that issue because you know there's that that argument that uh, the exports are being uh, uh, for being left behind in in lieu of bringing the the empty containers out of there, and now you got triple of them going out. The other problem is, yeah, seven point five days at anchor is is something, but then you got another four and a half at the terminal, and then another six point five before it even hits a warehouse after that. So even the in-powered is not completely out of the woods yet, but man record volumes they're pushing through there, man. Their productivity is way up in LA. Here's a story that has had a lot of drivers on edge and it's a specter of autonomous trucking. Well, a DOT study predicts no mass layoffs from driverless trucks. That's right. John Gallagher reports that a U.S. DOT sponsored study on automated driving systems concludes that truck drivers should not fear significant job losses due to automated uh, automation unless here's the kicker. It's, that's why I'm screwing up on this one. Due to automation, unless driverless technology is adopted on a fast timeline. So, right, that's the asterisk there. That's the caveat. Uh, produced by DOT's Office of the Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology, she says uh, macro- macroeconomic impacts of automated driving systems and long-haul trucking. Um, I could, for the first estimates on the productivity benefits are outweighing the losses that they're seeing. Can you go a little deeper on this one? Yeah, they said that only under the first adoption scenario, a very optimistic scenario in which 75% of new vehicle purchases involves uh, the automatic driving systems within 10 years of the technology becoming available, does the study re, uh, predict layoffs in the trucking industry? So under the most optimistic adoption, fastest adoption of these autonomous vehicles, do we see uh, the layoffs coming? And that said 1.7% of the long haul workforce in a single year would be laid off, which isn't a whole ton, right? 1.7 mm-hmm. when you when you think about the grand scheme of, of what's going on there. And that's only during a five-year period. The study also, as a result, we conclude that long haul truck drivers should be able to find employment as short haul truck drivers. So the issue of layoffs should not be a significant concern when considering the adoption of automation and long haul trucking. Easy for you to say if you're not a long haul trucker though, right? I know that's what drives me nuts about some of these reports. There's another quote we'll get here too that um, really stuck out to me, but here is what they're talking about. According to the study, level four and level five, high and full automation of long haul trucking. These are what they say the benefits are. Uh, It would produce increases in consumer welfare ranging from $35 per person in the U.S. per year. That doesn't sound like that much under the slow adoption scenario to $69 per person per year under the first adoption scenario. That seems like weird math, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't. It's certainly not going to spur any revenge spending. I don't think. I don't think it will. I mean, they do say it's going to increase total U.S. employment by by from 26,400 to 35,100. I mean, like that part I can get when we've done every time we've done 
automation in human history. It has created jobs and created prosperity, but it's also taken away jobs. And if, like you said, if you're in that long haul trucking segment, you know, this seg- this study isn't exactly going to sit well with me because as much good as it says, it's still talking about how it may be taking your job away. Uh, the deputy, the DOT, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation F- Policy, Finch Fulton, he's now the Vice President of Policy and Strategy for Autonomous Trucking Startup Locomotion. He listed several factors that would curtail job losses, including a protracted shortage of drivers, human-centric driving models, and slow fleet turnover by calendars. Um, here's a quote by him, though. If you're a trucker today, you'll probably be able to retire as a trucker. If you are younger than average trucker today, you can choose to work for a company with a human-centric approach or use automated trucks to help augment your own operations. If you are the trucker of tomorrow, you will likely be able to make informed decisions and choose to be trained for the jobs of tomorrow. Hmm. Sounds ominous. Uh yeah, it, um, it, it sounds to me like a, a, a lot of words that don't really give me a clear direction, to tell you the truth. I, I hear verb, adjective, noun, and not much in the, in the way of direction. It could be good. It could be bad. I don't know. I think the idea is that, um, yeah, it's coming, and, and it's probably not going to It's not gonna hit in one big fell swoop, but you got to keep your eye on it and understand where you're going. And I don't think that the prospect of this happening is going to help the uh, driver shortage in the in the, in the uh Long term there, Dooner, right? I mean, as longer, closer we get to automatic vehicles, who's going to go into an industry that they see being disrupted by automation? Here's some freight breaking news that just came up on FreightWaves.com. Great Lakes Petroleum uh, Transportation is filed for Chapter 11. Clarissa Haas has the breakdown on that. By the way, life goals in freight never end up the subject of a Clarissa Haas story. It's never good news. She actually calls herself the bad news bear, as I just learned on Twitter about uh, 45 <laughs> minutes ago. But they're a Michigan trucking company that hauls crude oil. They filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection this week, citing a drop in freight revenue. Sounds strange. Which is down 54% in the first two months of 2021 compared with the same time a year ago. For them, I'm not sure exactly how they ended up uh, in that predicament. Great Lakes Petroleum is headquartered in Alma, Michigan. It filed its petition in U.S. bankruptcy courts for the Eastern District of Michigan last Thursday. Yeah, and it's filing the Great Lakes. Uh, Great Lakes listed its assets as between fifty thousand and one million, and its liabilities between one million and ten million. It states that it has up to ninety nine creditors. Yeah, I'm not sure how they got into that. that that type of situation it's it's too bad it's it's maybe it's another one of those examples of somebody who is who's kept afloat by the stimulus package and uh for those you know the ppes and yeah well it looks like some of their credits were were tied into like mac trucks and financial into some of their vehicles uh so maybe they can rework all of that it is just chapter 11 so there is the potential there's still the um the option that they could recover from that but you know what our guest brett suma he's the ceo over at loadsmith out of denver colorado he is joining us Right now to talk about uh, some of the awesome stuff they've been doing, including a great article we just had on FreightWaves.com. He's also, Michael Vincent, get this, an ASU alumni. And you know who else went there? David Spade, Jimmy Kimmel, Al Michaels, Barry Bonds, James Harden, Wonder Woman, and Phil Mickelson. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hey, Al. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's, we're happy to have you here. Um, how are you doing today? And just introduce yourself a little bit to this lovely audience. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Brett Suma, and I'm the CEO of Loadsmith, which is a third party logistics company founded in July 1st of 2019. We moved our first load on September 19th of of 2019, and uh, we're headquartered in Denver. 
We have an operations office in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a sales office in Irvine, California, and in Rogers, Arkansas. Nice. Uh, Freight Alley location. All right. We like to see that type of stuff, right? So, hey, as as uh, as Dooner mentioned, ASU alumni, uh, Phil, are you more like Phil Mickelson, David Spade, Jimmy Kimmel, Al Michaels, or uh, Barry Bonds? Um, I'm going to go Reggie Jackson. Nice. Nice. Nice pick. Nice. Hey, you spent yeah. very nice. You spent a long time at night transportation, which makes me, which kind of begs the question here. You are kind of an asset brat, right? You, you were in that arena so long. What made you decide to go out and start a brokerage? Yeah. So I worked at night for just, just short of 20 years. And uh, along with, with David Stem and Jessica Kane and Nick Cook, who were, who were kind of the, the four of us that started Loadsmith, um, the, we all worked at night for a long time and, I really enjoyed the the asset side of the business. I, in fact, if you were to ask me five years ago or ten years ago, would I would I be in the business that I'm in today? I would have told you no. Um, but I really saw working through the asset um, side of things how the the need that Loadsmith could serve in the marketplace. And we, you know, we're a very driver centric company, um, and and that has to do with the fact that at night. Um, and all of my experience there, it was working with drivers and interacting with drivers, understanding drivers. Um, and so we're, we, we've taken those, you know, real, the, the discipline approach to network building, uh, to freight optimization, asset utilization, and really understanding uh, cost and cost drivers uh, as we came over to Loadsmith. And really, a lot of what we focus on uh, when we're talking about dense dense lanes and lane density and, and, and our network is really focused around drivers. And so we're, we're, we take all that experience that we had working at night and we, you know, to our customers, we feel like an asset carrier. And, that, and that's the feeling that we want our customers to have. And from the driver aspect of things, the driver experience, understanding the driver motivations, and then really building our freight network uh, around meeting those those motivations. Yeah. So, uh, Brett, you know, when you're talking about uh, a brokerage, et cetera, there's a ton of different uh, models for uh, sales structure and commission structures, et cetera, uh, to motivate those teams and to get things done. Um I understand that you have a fairly unique way of approaching those two things, uh, the sales and commission. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, well, I wouldn't say they're unique. I, I, maybe perhaps they are to the brokerage world. Um, they're not unique. If you were to look at, um, you know, our experience, you would say, well, this is how we've done it. And so we, we have no inside salespeople. We have nobody that makes cold calls. We, we don't have call lists. We don't have, this lead generation system. Um, we just don't have that. We have, you know, salespeople that, that I have known personally for a decade, 15 years more. Um, and those salespeople are out in the field making sales calls. We have account executives in, in our, in our headquarters that are managed by a team and we manage freight like an asset carrier would manage freight. We, our sales structure is based off of how, an asset business would structure it and, and our management structure is based off of it. So we, we don't have a commission structure for any of our, any of our employees in terms of, um, 
even on the the, the purchase trans side of things, our carrier relationship managers, uh, we they're not incentivized by um, margin in, in any way, shape, or form. And so we have wins and losses, and uh, we have great days, and we have struggling you know days where where we struggle to cover every load. Um, but we're not incentivized by you know we we don't have an individual incentive for somebody to uh, affect the experience for our carrier or the driver. And we don't have an incentive to affect what we choose to do or not do for the customer. Nice. And again, coming back to that, to that feel of, uh, of feeling like a, a, a asset carrier, we, we cover every load every day and that's, that's our experience. And that's what you have to do in this business. Well, cool. Tell us what you did over in Santa Barbara County, because that's a pretty cool story. It was up on FreightWaves.com, but all of our listeners may not have uh, read that actual story. So tell us what went down there. Yeah, so the Tahugas landfill is in is on the, the Santa Barbara coast, and it's you know it's Santa Barbara's land, landfill, and it and it filled up about twenty years earlier than it was supposed to, and obviously that's due to population growth. But um, they, you know, so the, there was a lawsuit that was filed against the county and against the city, and you know, there's a lot of environmental concerns um, with the location of the landfill. And if, if being there, if you turn around and look at the ocean, you're, you're looking at some of the, you know, highest priced real estate in the United States is along that coast. And there's this landfill there and it's full. And the question is, how do you continue to serve the population of the county and city um, from a waste management perspective, but also moving towards a green economy? And so the lawsuit was settled and ultimately where the county settled on was that they, they were going to build a recycling center at the landfill and they were going and beyond recycling, composting and um, digestion and, you know, natural gas um, production. I, I mean, there it's, it's really a modern marvel in terms of waste management. And in order for that to happen, they had to figure out what to do with the commoditized recyclables. And that's where we partnered with Bird Mill Supply. Um, we were very fortunate that, that they brought us into that um, to provide an export uh, solution uh, for, for the recyclables. Now, the caveat to that was that it required compressed natural gas drayage trucks. And, and that really is where Loadsmith and our expertise in terms of uh, structuring dedicated uh, transportation agreements, but beyond that, how to operationalize and execute uh, those types of projects. It's, you know, it, it's been, it's, we've been working on it for a year and we've moved loads now. And, and uh, it's something that we're really excited about just because of the, you know, the future in terms of green transportation and the green economy. Hey, thank you so much. By the way, there's a huge lightning storm that just started over here in Chattanooga, oh, Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, but Brett, how do people reach out and learn more information and get involved with you on some of these cool initiatives you're doing? Uh, you can always go to loadsmith.com. Uh, you can email me directly. Uh, my email is very simple. It's brett at loadsmith.com. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, you can visit our Facebook or Instagram as well. Very nice. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Hey, thank you as well. Take take it easy. Hey, next we're going to bring on my buddy from Boston, the Goodwill Hunting of Freight. I used to work with this gentleman for a couple years when they were called A Boarding Company. Uh-huh. Now they're a uh, Disney streaming video service called uh, Freight Plus. <laughs> 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 it's Chris Peckham. He's their uh, vice president of operations. Hey, Chris, man, it's been uh, it's been too long. 
<laughs> Timmy, it's been a minute, buddy, but it's great to see you. I like it, man. When'd you guys get the new logo and the new and the new name? Yeah, we rebranded effective January 1st. So, you know, as you mentioned, we were previously known as Aborn and Co. Um, and Aborn and Co was great when we were just purely a consulting company. You know, now that we've moved, uh, we're really focused on that managed transportation services space. You know, Freight Plus doesn't answer the question, the, the full question of what do you guys do? But it saves a little bit of time when you're Aborn and Co trying to explain managed transportation services, how we uh, interact with our customers and clients. So it's been good. It's been very well received. Yeah, I remember that was always the the challenge coming into a 4PL and doing marketing for you guys was just sort of understanding the market, what being letting the market know what being freight agnostic was and selling that proposition. I remember we had like one deal with this big dishwasher company and we were saving them so much money. They didn't even believe us. They're like, no, nah, we're going to go with the big guys. It was so disappointing, Chris. <laughs> but there's other ones. You go, Chris, you've had a ton of experience and you've been on both sides. So you have this this lifeguard seat from the 4PL side, the managed transportation side. But prior to that, you've been with Wayfair, Adidas, Shark Ninja, Clean Harbors. Um, Tell me a little bit about the difference between being on the 4PL side and being um, handling the freight inside of the shipper and which one's more difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's been really good. And I mean, one of the things being on this side of the desk, and as you said, you know, the first 20 years of my career, I was on the shipper side of the desk, you know, and when we're talking to prospect clients, you know, there's a certain level of, say, authenticity. Uh, so when I go in and I look at these folks, you know, I was that person. I was the person that the carriers and the freight pluses of the world wanted to come and talk to. So some of those challenges, you know, especially now, given where every single mode of transportation is a complete dumpster fire, some of those most difficult conversations are the internal ones when you got to talk to finance and explain why, you know, costs are up 25 to 30 to 40 percent year on year. So, you know, being on the shipper side of the desk obviously has some challenges because you're trying to explain freight to non-freight people and why things are late, why things are happening the way that they are or are not happening. Um, and then being on this side of the desk, it's good because now we can arm those folks with the necessary information. And because we have all their data at a very granular level, we can explain the trends to a person who can then regurgitate that internally and sort of soften the blow when times are tough like they are now. So I would say, you know... I would say being on this side is a little bit more challenging because it's more heavy lifting, but I would say being on this side is also a little bit more fulfilling because you can absolutely make a difference and not just at the bottom line with our customers. So it's been, it's been cool, you know, and I'm coming up on three years now with Freight Plus and um, it's been a, a very, very positive experience. So, hey, Chris, Mike, Mike Vincent, and, and really nice to meet you and a, nice to meet a friend of Dooner. I have a lot of respect for Dooner. Let me ask you this. When, you know, people go to school for different things, for management, et cetera. I went to school to be a, a doctor, then a lawyer, and then it was accountant and then management. And now I'm in trucking, right? That's kind of how it, how it goes. <clears throat> but you were, so you were in the shipper side of things and then you came to the other side. Now you're managed transportation, et cetera. And obviously those, those different experiences are important. Which side is more important in what you're doing? Would you recommend to somebody who wanted to be in this type of thing in the 3PL and doing the freight management and providing that to go out and, and get in that shipping uh, uh, department at a, at a large shipper and learn that side of it to be in this or staying on this side on the logistics, the carrier side, the way to go? Yeah, I think you could make an argument both sides. I mean, I think if you are in managed trans, and I'll be selfish and think about Freight Plus, this is a great spot for somebody to come in who doesn't have any experience because we're touching every mode and you can really learn everything from the ground up. Now, if you got a job with, uh, say, Schneider, specific on the truckload side, you're going to learn a hell of a lot about the truckload space and how it operates and how to think and act in that space. Uh, but you're not going to get exposed to things like the ocean freight and the air freight, things like that. 
Um, so I, you know, I think it would be really beneficial going back 20 plus years. Had I started in this, it would really open up a lot of doors and opportunities to go to the shipper side of things, you know, because I had a very, say, narrow vision on how the world operated when I was with Adidas. Uh, Adidas and Reebok, and then coming here, you know, you really get exposed to everything a little bit more soup to nuts. So I think, hey, you know, yo, Chris, how, they, Chris, how did you get thing. by with a mouth like that saying Adidas? They didn't correct you and make you say Adidas like they did when I was running their account at FedEx Trade Networks. It, it depends <laughs> on what continent you're on. So if you're in North America, Adidas is acceptable. If you're in Europe, it's Adidas. You know, if you're in Latin America, same thing. So, <clears throat> hey, Chris, I got to ask you something, man. Um, I forgot what it was. I got distracted by my own. Uh, oh, what I was going to say was, <laughs> no, I was going to, I was actually going to validate your point because going back to FedEx trade networks, I, I had two simultaneous thoughts about that. Um, big company. But the thing is like what Chris was saying, when you go in, they gave me Reebok air and all I did was Reebok air for a year. So if I wanted to learn something else, I had to be like, can I switch to ocean? And then can I switch to duty drawback? And then can I switch to this? And that's, so that's one of the disadvantages. The training is good in the big companies, but the disadvantage is you don't get to wear as many hats as you do on the smaller at the smaller independent companies um like chris is saying i think you can go in either way it's kind of what you make of it just be mindful of the fact and some of these bigger ones it's easier to get stuck if you don't switch around positions a little bit you know you start doing that reebok air then you know there's some people there you look at them 30 years later they're still doing entries and they haven't really advanced or climbed up the ladder so be mindful of that but chris it's it's contract season right now in freight how has that been going in trucking it's been a it's been a very very uh very very beefy market right now spot rates at like 324 on the national drive van um what have you guys been looking at yeah we're i mean we're obviously seeing the same thing and and what's new for us here at freight plus uh is we got our operating authority last year so we do have a brokerage operation that's been in uh, that's been rolling since august of last year now we're different in how the way i described is we're a closed loop type of brokerage operation where because we're in the managed trans space we don't have to go and find the freight. We know where the freight is. And now it's just a matter of building up the underlying asset relationships to go out and handle that freight on behalf of our customers today. But we're seeing the exact same thing. You know, we managed several RFPs for a bunch of clients, let's say back in May, you know, when the market really bottomed out last year. And then, as we all know, it's just been a straight arrow north trajectory on rates. So, you know, carriers that came back not honoring rates. Uh, we've been able to get into some negotiated pricing on some specific lanes. I would say right now that's probably about 20% um, of the total uh, the total volume that's out there on behalf of our clients is now negotiated pricing. Uh, but everything else has been running that spot. So it's it's been unfortunate, but every day we're trying to lock into some pricing. Because going back to those internal conversations, even if it, the price is higher than what you had last year, at least it's predictable, right? At least internally, somebody can go back to finance and say, Here's, this is going to be the rate, whether it's good for 60 days, 90 days, six months, whatever it's going to be. We can get away from these, uh, you know, these wild swings that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, Chris, so um, control tower, the control tower approach to, to your logistics system has been something that has really been brought to light over the, over the last year, right? This, mm-hmm. this holistic approach to be able to see all those different parts. When you get into managed transportation, that's really the goal is to control all those parts and have everything uh, work perfectly and be uh, a living, breathing type of thing that is flexible. So that control tower approach, what, what is your philosophy? What does that mean to you? And have you learned, what have you, what have you seen over the last year that really came to light and that you need to focus on in, in that aspect of, of freight management? 
Yeah, the whole control tower approach to me is it's something I wish I had way back in the day. You know, it gives that one central repository for all your data across all modes, makes it very reportable. You know, we're blowing out some some BI tools as well to make it more customer facing, so a little bit more self-service. Um, and, you know, some of the things that we've learned is, you know, technology cures a lot of issues out there, but it's not the be all end all. Uh, in fact, we had a very, very large control tower type project. Uh, for a shipper who had jumped into that whole PPE game, uh, you know, we're talking about 46 chartered aircrafts handling the commercial negotiations, another 600 ocean containers, again, doing the commercial side, the operational side, uh, setting up some domestic cross-docking, handling the uh, domestic delivery into FEMA warehouses, creating reporting, auditing freight, uh, sending over all the invoices. So we acted as a control tower on their behalf with no technology just because we didn't have the time to set it up. So I think, you know, what we've been learning over time is that the control tower approach is great, but it's not a one size fits all uh, for our customers. So we've we've learned that it's OK to carve out some things that may not make sense uh, for the specific customer that we're working with. I dig it, man. By the way, you are the second uh, pro baseball player we've had on the show this week. Oh. You had a you had a little career back in the dugouts back in the day playing a little ball. You know, you've you've been through yeah. baseball. You've been in freight both wild worlds. So before we let you go, what's the craziest St. Patrick's Day that you can semi remember? The craziest St. Patrick's Day, probably <laughs> nothing that I can repeat on this show. Um, <laughs> we've, uh, you know, it's been toned down over the years now that I'm in my mid forties. Uh, you know, things have scaled back quite a bit. But as you know, you know, evacuation day, uh, St. Patty's Day here in Boston is usually quite the event. Unfortunately, during due to the pandemic, everything's going to be a little bit quieter again this year. But uh, yeah, you're right. I did spend some time in baseball. People ask me the question, you know, all the time, why'd you stop playing? I was in the Angels organization. I said, I didn't I didn't want to stop playing. They just told me I couldn't come back. It was sort of a loft that got me out of the game. It was the lack of talent. So, you know, I showed up. I, I pretty much outworked everybody. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to have a little bit of talent and you know, so it was a great couple year run with those folks. You know, great experience. Not still not sure how I ended up in operations, supply chain, transportation. But, you know, here we are 20 plus years later. Well, I dig it, Chris. It's not uh, Disney Plus. It's not Paramount Plus. It's not Discovery Plus. It's not ABC Plus. It's Freight Plus. How do people reach out and learn more? You know, partner. so uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, you can reach me directly. My email is cpeckham, uh, P-E-C-K-H-A-M, at freightplus.io because we're fancy like that. Um, and feel free to reach out at any time. Always happy to get on a call um, and, and talk to the folks that are out there who are interested in learning more. Thank you, Mashala. Don't be a stranger. We'll have you back soon. Have a wicked good uh, St. Patrick's Day. All right, partner. Good to see you, Timmy. <laughs> Take it easy. All right, man. Again, we would like to thank our friends at Legend Transportation for sponsoring today's episode. Legend partners with strategic customers while providing seamless solutions for its drivers and its West Regional premieres. Freight Transportation Company. Learn more at newlegendinc.com. All right, guys. Now we're going to get a bit more into the Hyperloop. We have a little preview video here to set the table. So let's see what Heart Hyperloop is all about. Roll the tape. We can order everything 24-7 online. But when we step away from our computers, our order gets stuck in congested highways and lost in unreliable processes. It's time that our physical world aligns with our digital one. Fast, reliable, and on demand. Meet the Heart Cargo Loop, a low-cost, sustainable alternative to the current modes of cargo transport. Reliable, autonomous, and available 24-7. 
Leveraging existing pipe technologies, Cargo Loop consists of a series of autonomous vehicles that travel inside a low-pressure environment using magnetic levitation and electric motors. This combination of technologies results in an extremely reliable and secure system suitable for continuous zero-emission transportation. Every route is part of an extensive network, serving every destination across a continent within one day. Redefining the global supply chain, perishables, e-commerce orders, food and pharma are all transported on demand in a reliable, smart and sustainable manner. Brought to you by Heart Hyperloop. Wow, that looks super cool. And, and hey, guys, thanks for joining us today. Uh, would you mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Uh, shall I start? Absolutely. Go for well? it. Yeah. Go ahead. My name is Mark Schoeze. I'm uh, one of the founders of Heart Hyperloop. Uh, and before this, I was one of the founders of Delft Hyperloop. Delft Hyperloop was the student team that won the first uh, Hyperloop pod competition of Elon Musk. Uh, and afterwards, we uh, we started the Heart Hyperloop. And although I have a technical background in applied physics, I'm actually responsible for all the non-technical aspects uh, of the company because there's <laughs> a, you know there's a lot of things that come into play to bring something like this to reality. Absolutely. How about so, you? Stan? Yeah, my name is. Stan. Sorry, yeah, just introducing myself. My name is uh, Stan uh, on the KDUA in Dutch. Uh, I came on board quite recently with Hard Hyperloop. I have a background in logistics. Uh, and uh, I'm responsible for uh, for getting this uh, online in the logistics and the cargo industry. So um, yeah, happy to be uh, to be on here and talk about uh, what we think uh, could be the future of transportation. Now, Mars, when you first decided to get involved in hyperloops, did everyone not named Elon Musk look at you like you were crazy when you said you wanted to shoot people and cargo through tubes at 700 miles an hour? Yeah, the uh, that was already back in 2013, right? That was when the first paper of uh, Elon Musk uh, came out, and I think his name was not as as big as it was already now. Uh, so uh, there was a, a lot of talk already back then, and at that moment we were building uh, uh, electric race cars, and me and the, the three other founders of Hearts. We already thought that was quite a cool thing to work on. Uh, also, if there would be some kind of a competition, so um, when it when Elon in the end organized it it was very quick for us to decide to work on this and at that moment it sounded very futuristic but if but if you look at sort of how that has evolved over time i think a lot more realism has come into it right and people starting to see that this is not just some kind of hyper uh, a dream thing uh, but more a real transport solution that solves challenges that we're looking at now yeah so mars from the beginning of this was it was it when you got involved with it was it moving people or moving cargo and if it was people how did you make the move to to cargo yeah so in the first the very first concepts so back in the paper from 2013 was was really a a a, a solution focused on passengers right it was uh, conceptualized yeah. that because we were building this high-speed rail between uh, los angeles and san francisco can we come up with something that is more future-proof and so that's really where the initial concept came from uh, but uh, what we also did was just look at uh, two things. One is, we, of course, you have a piece of technology. What what more can you do with it? But on the other hand, also looking at what is the market doing and what kind of solutions can we develop for the market? So we we started with developing uh, these, this this passenger solution um, in the first place. Uh, but we also quickly realized that there's so much 
growth and untapped potential in cargo transports that we decided to really fully develop a, a dedicated solution for that as well. And we also believe that that is a, a solution that we can bring to market much faster than a, uh, than a system for, uh, for passengers. Now, Stan, we got a primer on Hyperloop. We had Virgin Hyperloop on um, about a week ago. They, they talked about some of the ins and outs of, of how it actually propels itself with magnets and all of those kind of things. But are all Hyperloops created equal? How do the business models differ and how does the tech differ? Well, I think um, there's there's still a lot to find out in that field. So um, the basics are pretty much the same, but um, how how it will change uh, in the years to come as well. I think there's still a lot of innovation taking place, and uh, it's it's become a race, and that's good. I I mean that's good for every Hyperloop company, right? To to be pushed by uh, by its competitors. Um, I also think that aside from the technical challenges, you also have to look at what will we use it for. And um, yeah, for passengers, it's it's an easy story, right? It can replace the the, the short and medium uh, haul flights. For cargo, it can also mean a lot for continental freight. I think uh, the trends are here that you know everyone wants everything faster, more frequent, in more volumes. Uh, we expect uh, the transport in uh, in Europe to uh, to increase uh, significantly in years to come. While we have also a massive challenge in decarbonizing. You know, we, we have to be six times more carbon productive in transport than we are now. And with existing technologies, that's just really hard to achieve. In fact, uh, with current technologies, it's impossible. So we really need a new solution um, that can cope with what everybody wants, which is speed, right? Next day delivery, uh, while also um, being uh, carbon neutral. And that's that's what this solution can bring. It certainly can. And, and Stan, so you're, you're uh, and I've known you for a couple of years. It's really nice to see you again, my friend. Uh, so you're in there for the business development of the cargo side of this. And when I look at this, and I, I'm sure many others look at this, passengers come to mind because it, it really reminds you of, of rail, right? The way the system is. It, it reminds you of a rail system and, 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 and you think passengers. In the world of logistics and cargo, I think rail and I think bulk. And I think does this is this going that way more than than parcels and pallets? Is it going more bulk in rail cars and and spurs, et cetera, type of thing? Do you see that development or no? Well, I, I see the link that you make, but actually, uh, we feel that it should be more towards the outbound part of uh, of logistics. So, after the order has been placed, then we need speed, right? If you look at the inbound logistics process, so from manufacturing location to a distribution center, typically that's high volumes and doesn't require the same speed as everything that comes after the order is made. So we see definitely more potential in the distribution part of logistics, but also in the in the part in between. So business to business is becoming more and more time critical as well. Everyone wants to get rid of its stock. I mean, stock is costs. So if you can uh, eliminate stock that is en route, so if you can limit the time that it is actually in transit, which this this solution can, then you're also saving money. Uh, the same goes for what you need uh, in stock uh, if you use a quicker system like, like the cargo loop. So we feel that it can replace uh, a, a part. So it's definitely in addition to existing modalities, a part of real traffic but mostly a part of the longer distance uh, type of cargo uh, that goes by road or by air, of course. Um, a lot of products are shipped by air, even within the continent of Europe. 
uh, that's not really sustainable, but that's happening because people require and businesses require speed. If you have an alternative to that air cargo, continental air cargo, then I think uh, we will find a big market for it. Mars, before we let you go, you know, in the United States here, it's <clears throat> we're always debating about infrastructure and infrastructure projects, and it's hard to get the you know the purse strings to open up and pay for those kind of things. Is Europe a better market for a Hyperloop from an infrastructure perspective, or are you more open to it over there? Um, well, I think what we do very well here is the public-private partnerships and setting up sort of the processes to get something like this to market. Of course, Europe is also quite splintered with the uh, different governments um, combined, of course, in the European Commission. But what is already happening now is that the European Commission is sort of taking the lead with organizing uh, by three monthly uh, meetings with all the Hyperloop companies to really set up a regulatory framework and seeing in how this can be put into policy as well. And it's already also named in the mobility strategy now. And what you also see is that there are some governments within Europe that really see this as a moment for them to also take the lead in uh, in, in positioning themselves as a, uh, a very forward-looking country, right? Uh, I think the Netherlands, where we're based, is, is a very good example for that. Um, so we do see a lot of potential here for both starting short routes, we're looking now, for example, at a short freight route in the Netherlands, uh, but also uh, setting up uh, European standards, uh, European, European regulatory framework, and really policy to build out a network. So we do see a lot of support on the various levels uh, right now. Yeah, I, I could see that happening. And, you, and, you know, Europe, uh, especially the Netherlands, they, they tend to take the lead, especially on some of the zero emission policies. And you look at what they've done with EVs and they even have some autonomous vessels out in the water now. So really exciting, really forward thinking. If people want to learn more about what you folks are doing, where should we send them to? You can send them at least to our website. Yep. So that's uh, www.hart, that's H-A-R-D-T, and then .global. Um, so uh, everybody's welcome to uh, to look at the website there, and you can find all our contact information and, uh, and everything we're doing on there. Nice. Well, best of luck to you guys. Um, I look forward to our future of the Hyperloop. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thanks. Take it easy. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. All right. Our next guest is an author. She's a cross-culture consultant. She's written the book, The Accidental Office Lady, and she has a brand new book as well out of Brooklyn, New York. It's Laura Kriska. Hey, Laura, what's up? Hi. <laughs> it's good seeing you. Good to see you, too. There's your book. Thanks the, for having me on your show. The Business of We. Is your book actually that big or did you do like a special wall blow up? I wrote in huge letters <laughs> and every book is this size. Is that weird? I, don't, I need a coffee table book. I'm like, I, I lovely. I, I, a business culture coffee table book. It would make sense in, in the uh, the lobby, at least. But you have a really cool story. Like I was I was going through your bio and I was I was reading into your background and you're a you're a young girl, 22 years old. And you tell us about this. You joined over at the uh, what was it? The Tokyo headquarters of Honda Motor Company. And in fact, you were the first American woman to do so. What was that experience like? It was different than I expected it to be. Um, you might know from the research. So I was born in Japan. I had studied in Japan and I really wanted to be in Japan. And it was like a dream come true. But when I got there, things were a little different. Remember when you went from being in school to being in the real world? That's a culture shock. And I was doing that, having that culture shock in a different country. So there was a lot going on. 
There was, and Laura, I'm, I'm so on your first talk about your first day and how it how it uh, inspired the the we or or mm-hmm. your first experience with us versus them. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. So my very first day at the Tokyo headquarters, I showed up wearing a beautiful cream colored suit, you know, dress for success. This was the late 80s. And I thought I was going to be this global businesswoman. And when I got there in the first day before lunch, they gave me a uniform that was only for women, blue polyester, a lot like what girl cats used to wear. And it was a shock because, you know, wearing a women's only uniform seemed like um, very something very outdated. And yet I understood that as a visitor to Japan, I needed to adjust. So I was um, I said goodbye to my dress for success clothing and I put on the uniform and even so the wearing the uniform was one of the ways I could try to fit in but that the fact that I I didn't look like everyone else I didn't sound like everyone else you know I I spoke some Japanese but it wasn't native so the feeling of being a them an outsider was very prominent and it was probably one of the first times in my life that it was a daily experience. And this is something I talk a lot about in my book. All of us have had experiences feeling like an outsider. I'd love to hear from either of you on that. But for many of us, these are passing situations. But for some people, even here in the United States, you know, because of the way they look, the way they sound, whatever it is, they feel like a them every single day. And so when I was 22 and working in the Tokyo headquarters of Honda, I felt like an outsider every day. Wow. So I got to imagine that you go in there in Japan and and what is because auto industry has got to be a lot like freight. It's old school. It's run by a lot of men. You come in there. So you're facing age bias because you're 22. You're, you're probably facing gender bias because you're a female. You might be facing ethnic bias because you are not a you're not you're born in Japan, but you're not native Japanese, or at least you don't look that way. Um, is that true? And, and how did you fight through those things? And what did you learn from that that can be applied to other areas in business? Well, I think that people were very welcoming to me. They tried to make me feel included. So part of my experiences were just inevitable. They, you know, there are a lot of gaps. People come to their workplaces with lots of differences. Um, Like you just said, age, ethnicity, race, uh, gender, we all bring differences. So the fact that differences exist are predictable and inevitable. It's the question of how do we deal with that? So in Japan, I think, you know, I I really wanted to succeed. I was determined to build relationships. And ultimately, that was my salvation. I did look different. I continued to not speak Japanese as fluently as everyone else. So those differences remained. But I overcame the feeling of being like an outsider through meaningful relationships. And this is what is going to be our salvation here in the United States, no matter what the division is, Uh, because we can't change the divisions. And I don't think we should change the fact that we 
bring different things to our workplaces, to our daily lives, but building relationships. I mean, not just like acquaintance, not like, oh, hey, you know, you know somebody's name, but I mean, trusting relationships that can do the heavy lifting when things get difficult. And so when you build those meaningful relationships, this is a salvation away from division and toward unity. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like in our country, in our workplaces, if instead of spending time on, you know, he said, she said, or this department did that, and they always say no. Can you imagine what it would be like if people actually cooperated use their skills and talents toward finding new solutions for customers, toward innovation. I mean, the the productivity of every organization would skyrocket if we simply stopped focusing and thinking about all the ways we're different and actually spent a little bit of time learning about other people. It doesn't mean you have to like or agree, but just understanding the different cultural norms, and then building trusting relationships. This is what WeBuilding is all about. That's really awesome stuff, Laura. And, and I did have a not not quite as intense an experience as you did, but I had that experience uh, a, a number of years ago, uh, 20 plus years ago when I moved into uh, ocean shipping and I moved from central Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. being from Cleveland, Ohio, central Pennsylvania to uh, the Miami River, <laughs> working in ocean and running container freight stations. It was myself and another gentleman from Boston who were literally one of maybe five people uh, mm-hmm. out of 600 in this container freight station that weren't of Hispanic uh, descent or from the islands. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just this hodgepodge of different nationalities that was there. It was just, and it was a beautiful thing. And it was in the nineties, but it was a beautiful thing because it all worked so together and everybody did kind of celebrate those differences. And it was, and I think that's what you're saying. Embrace those differences, celebrate those and understand the things that were, you know, that you bring to the table because of those differences. Correct. Yes. And and finding the things that are common. Yes, we have different food or different celebrations or different languages, but we still have so much in common if we seek that commonality. commonality. So just as a simple example, I was having, I was doing a corporate training in a New York City bank. And at lunchtime, there was a, an older gentleman um, from Pakistan and we were sitting at the table. You know, and I don't know that much about Pakistan and we were just chit chatting. And suddenly we realized that field hockey is a huge sport in Pakistan. I played field hockey in high school. I have a scar, scar right here (laughs) where I got hit in the chin. I felt really proud of it at the time. But here we were, two people who didn't look like each other, who spoke different native languages, had grown up in different places, but we had field hockey in common. Now, how did we discover that? Well, we sat down next to each other and just chit-chatted over lunch. I mean, that is one of the single most important strategies I promote in my book is sharing time, face-to-face interactions of increasing depth. Obviously, these days we have to be careful, but we will get back to a time where we can say to somebody, hey, do you want to have lunch? And then just open up and listen and look for the things that you have in common. Yeah. Now, if you are going to look into an industry, say you're 22 again, you're going to break into somewhere, which industry do you think needs a female perspective the most? 
maybe your industry. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? I'm, joking. How, I'm, how I'm not going to argue that. Uh, freight definitely needs more female leaders. There's there's no denying. Uh, you know, there's only seven percent of, of females are, are truck drivers. I think only twenty three percent of the industry is females at all. And then, you know, you look at C-suites and everything like that. There's just not as many females. There's some great leaders like, you know, Shelly Simpson over at J.B. Hunt. But yeah, I think we could. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to book you on here is because I thought you had a great perspective to lend on here. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, but people should go and check out your book, especially uh, your new one. Where would they go about getting the business of we? Most retailers have it online. Uh, I like to, you know, support local booksellers, of course, but any retailer online um, has both books. Beautiful. Well, hey, we appreciate your time today. And if anyone wants to connect with you or, or reach out to you, how would we? Uh, where would we send them to? Well, I have a website, Laura Kriska. It's with a K, K R I S K A uh, dot com. But LinkedIn is a really good place. And I have um, some upcoming webinars, free webinars about we building if people are interested so they can check me out there. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of uh, your St. Patrick's Day if you want to do so. Take it easy. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, hey, Michael Vincent, every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time, we have a newsletter that comes out. You can go to FreightWaves.com slash WTT to sign up for that. And right now it's about time we go inside the newsletter. Amen. You've got mail. <laughs> well, all right. Well, we touched on these. Uh, we touched on these markets a little bit with Chris Peckham when he was on spot rates this week down seven cents, three twenty four a mile. Um, we looked at the outbound tender rejects, right? We looked at the volumes. Not on this show. We we did before we came on air. Those were relatively even. What are you looking at in the market this week? What's sticking out to you? Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's down slightly as far as the volumes and the, uh, up on tender rejects, but it's, it's not dropping off a cliff. It's, it's kind of normalizing at those, at those levels again. And we'll see what, what happens with the revenge spending. You know what I'm saying? Inventories are still low. Mm. Stimulus check is coming out. People are vengeful. They want to spend, uh, it, it, you know, it's still very strong. You got produce season starting. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't look for it to, uh, to, uh, loosen up anytime soon. It's certainly not going to drop like, uh, the percentages that you're looking out there in San Pedro Bay, uh, with, uh, with the, um, uh, imports on the water. Speaking of that, and you mentioned these inventories, one of the things I touched on in the newsletter was Yeti. They spoke of a 25% year over year inventory drop, and they are attributing that to congestion and port closures and all those kind of things. So much. So much so they've decided to reposition themselves now and they're using uh, Port Houston. Port Houston is one of their main hubs and it makes sense for them. They have a distribution facility over that way. But Port Houston really, really bringing up the business. Foot Locker was another one that had uh, big issues and their earnings came out with inventory, the supply chain issues, 23.6% uh, inventory drop. And if you ever listen to or read Andrew Cox's stuff, he's always going on and on about Peloton and um, the, the the struggles with uh, their inventory and putting um you know, 200 pound bicycles on jet planes and hot tubs when, you, when we have lower. Yeah, yeah we're next to the hot tubs, right? <laughs> hey, let's check this out. You want to see the Tesla semi on the track? We got a video from Tesla. I do. Let's take a look. Let's see what yes, it sounds like. Nice. Well, I like it. I, it I was like it. A little bit like a TIE fighter, but it did look like it was going kind of slow there, didn't it? 
Yeah, it, it didn't look like it was it was going super fast. And can they change the sound to make it sound like a Jetsons car? You know that oh, that would be really cool. Dude, they can on the horns. On the horns on Teslas, you get all sorts of different options. You can have it play like awesome. all different jingles. It's almost like picking a ringtone on your cell phone. I mean, <laughs> at some point you gotta you gotta wonder if that that's safe or not. Um, so we see the Tesla on the track. Uh, last news we had on Tesla was that they were going to wait until they could make their own batteries for production. But we were also hearing that because there's a battery shortage, they were diverting a lot of those to higher margin items like the Tesla Plaid that they have out. But now we're starting to see these on the track. We saw some spy footage the uh, last week on the show from those guys. Actually, that was on Freightways Insiders when I was talking to Alan Adler. Um, so maybe getting closer on their Q4 earnings call, they said they're going to have these out by the end of the year. That will remain to be seen. But Tesla also got into a little bit of trouble. If you are not familiar, they've been um, basically doing a public beta with their fuels, with their full self-driving. And um, it's gone fairly well, except for a few accidents. And there was one that happened in Detroit where a Tesla and granted, this happened at like 320 in the morning, Michael Vincent, and someone went through an intersection and they ended up wedged under a semi truck. But the two people driving the Tesla were critically injured. The NTSB is now down there and they are they're They're looking into this crash and they're also giving the NHTSA a lot of heat, saying they have to have more oversight over these autonomous vehicles. This is uh, the third time a Tesla has driven under a trailer in 2016 and 2019. Something similar happened in Florida. You know what's funny though? The, these accidents have happened and it hasn't gotten the same amount of press and traction like that Uber did. Remember that Uber ran that person over crossing the street? Yeah, that was uh, like in Phoenix or something or Tucson. Yeah. It was in Arizona when, when that happened. Yeah, the headline uh, autonomous vehicles are hunting down pedestrians or whatever it happens to be. I, I wonder if it's if these, and I don't know all the details of this. I, I'm wondering if this is they were they were driving and it was engaged with the auto autonomous or some of the autonomous, or if they were just can you actually drive a Tesla completely autonomous or yes. is it like, you know, so, hey, a Subaru uh, yeah, where it kind of does it? I'll tell you. So they have their full self-driving beta out right now, which does it for you. Now, it, there's a disclaimer. It tells the operator that they are supposed to be fully attentive the whole time. They have to take control of the wheel if the car is doing something wonky. But here's the thing. Human nature, people get distracted. You know, it's gone 100 miles without incident. You stop paying attention to the road. And that is what the NTSB is uh, taking umbrage with, where they want, I don't know if it's via camera in cars like they have in some trucks or something, but some sort of warning system that will cause issues or, or will just provide some safety if a driver is completely not paying attention, right? Yeah, you know, it sounds weird that you can sell a vehicle that would allow you to do this and just put a warning on there. Hey, you know, just watch what you're doing. When, you know, my ladder in my garage says, do not use as a soup ladle. Uh, they have to put stuff like that on there <laughs> to make sure I'm not an idiot using my ladder, you know, to, to swat flies in my daughter's bedroom or something like that. But you're allowed to have a car that you could just drive autonomously and says, well, just watch what you're doing. Well, here's the thing. P- people get too hung up on regulations and they end up like demonizing. I mean, that was like such a story, especially like my my dad's generation. They're so like anti-regulation. Yeah. But what happened like the regulation itself isn't bad. Like, do you want a bunch of autonomous vehicles out there with zero regulation? They'd be out there right now. So be careful when you start yelling about regulation or do you want to spend $9,000 or $15,000 on your bills because the power grid froze in Texas? I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think that for a while it was good to drop down some of these regulations, but clearly, especially like in tech, I think maybe a little bit more oversight is necessary. You would hope that some lawmakers could come up with I mean, that becomes a hard part, right? Putting regulations that don't completely suck in place. 
Uh, we're out of time, man. This one ended quickly. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Dooner. That's D O N E R. Find him at Vincent the Dude. We'll be back Friday, noon Eastern time. Go enjoy revenge spending that semi and go on a prep crawl today. It's St. Patrick's Day. What do you got to say, Michael? Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love.